1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Al Cresta, and I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, It was on this day in 1791 that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart died at the age of 35. Uh, He began composing his first symphony at the age of (laughs) 8. By 20 years of age, Years of age, he was a, a mature composer. His death at 35 was the extinguishing of a great light in the world of music. But I want to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, why Benedict Sixteenth regarded Mozart as his favorite composer, and why Benedict Sixteenth has actually been called the Mozart of theology. Uh, we'll also take a look at uh, Mozart, since it is the anniversary of his death. We'll take a look at the various theories that have been uh, proposed as to his death. We're also going to take a look at uh, Henry Kissinger's career. Uh, Paul Kengor will be with me taking a look at the role that Henry Kissinger played. It's amazing uh, his influence all these years. He died Wednesday at the age of 100, but uh, he was only active in foreign policy, about eight years, and yet he's known, really, as the giant of the 20th century uh, diplomacy, diplomatic world. We're also going to take a look with Dr. Robert Waples, professor of economics at Wake Forest, going to look at what's going on in Argentina, um, the election of Javier Millet, uh, frequent critic critic of Pope Francis, Uh, we'll get uh, Robert's fix on what the economy looks like there, and It appears as though you're going to actually see a giant experiment uh, worked out in Argentina between free market economics and a control and command economy. We'll talk more about it a little bit later today. And then we're going to take a full hour with Father Robert Spitzer. His newest book is an outstanding work of apologetics, and it's about science being able to lead us to God. But first, the headlines.
0: Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, December 5th. It's the Feast of St. Savas. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro life and Catholic causes at charitymobile.com. The Israel Hamas War is in its 60th day. Israeli President Isaac Herzog says Palestinian citizens are being warned about what Israeli troops will do.
3: We send them leaflets by the millions, we call them by the millions, yes. and then we, we direct them to safe zones where they can stay.
0: Israeli forces are conducting their ground assault in southern Gaza. Hamas leaders are thought to be hiding there. This comes as the U.S. is in talks with other allies about creating a naval task force to escort commercial ships in the Red Sea after attacks by Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen. College leaders are testifying before Congress about their handling of anti-Semitism on campus. Harvard President Claudine Gay says the institution is working hard to confront hate while preserving free speech.
4: This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. The free exchange of
1: ideas is the foundation upon which Harvard is built.
0: The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania defending their policies during a House subcommittee hearing. The University of Notre Dame has a new president. Today, the Board of Trustees elected Father Robert Dowd, a Holy Cross priest and associate professor of political science. Dowd has also been a frequent guest on Chris in the Afternoon, discussing Christian persecution in Africa. He'll assume his role at the conclusion of the academic year and replace Father John Jenkins, who is stepping down after 19 years of leading the university. North Carolina Republican Patrick McHenry will not seek re-election next year. McHenry served as the acting House Speaker for three weeks as GOP lawmakers struggled to unite behind a permanent leader following the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. From your Avi Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Steve Clark.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. That's a little bit of night music from Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, one of his most popular pieces, easily recognizable. He was born 1756, died 1791, and along with Bach and Beethoven, is probably the most recognizable name in Western orchestral music. Uh, He composed his first symphony at the age of eight. He was a prodigy. And by the age of 20, he was considered a mature composer. In other words, when most composers just begin serious composition, he was already mature. Uh, He composed more than 800 works of virtually every genre of his time. And remember, he did it, uh, you know, dying at the age of 35. He had, uh, you know, he wrote symphonies, he wrote uh, composed operas, masses, chamber music, And whatever Mozart put his musical hand to, he ended up giving us masterpieces. Truly uh, a remarkable figure in the history of Western music. Now, his parents uh, were Catholics, and they raised their children uh, to be pretty pretty strict in their faith. Uh, They encouraged family prayer, fasting, regular attendance at Mass, veneration of the saints, frequent confession, in fact, there's a, a, an interesting letter when Mozart was 21 that his father wrote to him and also uh, wrote to his wife, and he said that, um, "...is it necessary for me to ask whether Wolfgang is not perhaps getting a little lax about confession? God must come first. From his hands we receive our temporal happiness, and at the same time we must think of our eternal salvation." Young people do not like to hear about these things. I know, for I was once young myself. But thank God, in spite of all my youthful, foolish pranks, I always pulled myself together. I avoid all dangers to my soul and ever kept God in my honor and <clears throat> the consequences, the very dangerous consequences, before my eyes. Now, by very dangerous consequences, he probably was referring to the doctrine that persons who die in a state of mortal sin will experience eternal punishment in hell. But something else to keep in mind here. Wolfgang wrote back, and this is what young Mozart uh, told his uh, father, Papa, don't worry, for God is ever before my eyes. I realize his omnipotence and I fear his anger, but I also recognize his love, his compassion, and his tenderness towards his creatures. He will never forsake his own. If it is according to his will, so let it be according to mine. Thus all will be well, and I must needs be happy and contented. Um He he addressed the issue of personal morality here too. He wrote back I cannot possibly live like the majority of our young men. In the first place I have too much religion, in the second too much love for my fellow men, and too great a sense of honor. Uh, he worried, again, He, his dad was worrying, but Mozart's trying to put him at ease. I know that I have so much religion that I shall never be able to do a thing which I would not be willing openly to do before the whole world. Um, he once canceled a tour with two musicians of ill repute. And he said, look, friends who have no religion are not stable. They are not for me. You, there are lots of interesting exchanges between Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and his father but his dad Leopold actually saw the birth of Mozart as a miracle he actually writes about this and uh, he writes to a friend Lorenz Hagenauer and he describes his son as quote a miracle which God has allowed to see the light in Salzburg now Salzburg is where he was born and if it is ever to be my duty to convince the world of this miracle, it is so now. When people are ridiculing whatever is called a miracle and denying all miracles, but because this miracle is too evident, and consequently not to be denied, they want to suppress it. They refuse to let God have the honor. I mean, what's you know? Think about that. I mean, imagine your parents looking upon you as an actual miracle. Your very birth and the light that emanated from your music and your prodigy um, are, are part of the defense of God. Here's a living miracle right before us. Benedict XVI was called the Mozart of Theology, and in fact, Mozart was his favorite composer. There was a piece in Church Life Journal a few years ago, and unfortunately I don't have the name of the author But this piece looks at Benedict XVI's love for Mozart. And by the way, Mozart, for some reason, has really caught the imagination of some of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Karl Barth, undoubtedly the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century, actually wrote a book uh, about Mozart, uh, thought Mozart was the best. Uh, Same thing with the... um, Hans Kung, who at one time was a Catholic theologian, and he had his license to teach Catholic theology removed, but he continued to be a theologian, Uh, he also wrote a book uh, about Mozart. And uh, Bennett XVI made it known that Mozart was his favorite composer. So you can take a look at uh, a book that was uh, circulated around for the 250th anniversary of Mozart's birth. This is back in 2006, and Pope Benedict made a contribution there. This is what he said. He's going back to his his childhood, and he's thinking back of what it was like to hear Mozart as a child. Quote, When in our home parish of Traunstein on feast days, a mass by Mozart resounded, For me, a little country boy, it seemed as if heaven stood open, In the front, in the sanctuary, columns of incense had formed in which the sunlight was broken. At the altar, the sacred action took place, of which we knew that heaven opened for us. And from the choir sounded music that could only come from heaven. Music in which was revealed to us the jubilation of the angels over the beauty of God. This is just a few seconds uh, from his Mass uh, coronation Mass, and this is the Credo uh, portion of it. It's just the very beginning. But again, think of the young boy, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, at Mass hearing this kind of music and being raptured away. Um. He said, I have to say that something like this jubilation happens to me still when I listen to Mozart. Mozart is pure inspiration, or at least I feel it so. Each tone is correct and could not be different. The message is simply present. The joy that Mozart gives us, and I feel this anew in every encounter with him, is not due to the omission of a part of reality, It is an expression of a higher perception of the whole, something I can only call inspiration out of which his compositions seem to flow naturally. Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, loved music, played music, he was a pianist, loved Mozart, and he knew that music was not mere entertainment. He possessed a profound sense of aesthetics that went beyond just sensual experience. He had been influenced by the uh, great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, also loved Mozart. And uh, Benedict XVI often reflected upon the importance of beauty and harmony uh, for the strengthening of our faith, and especially for expressing faith in the liturgy. There's a remarkable message that he gave uh, back when he was still cardinal, In August of 2002, he gave it to the Communion and Liberation Movement in uh, Rimini, Italy, and the topic was the contemplation of beauty, and this is what he wrote. The encounter with the beautiful can become the wound of the arrow that strikes the heart and in this way opens our eyes, so that later, from this experience, we take the criteria for judgment and can correctly evaluate the arguments. In that same uh, text, he recalled an experience he had after listening to a Bach concert uh, in Munich. Uh, Leonard Bernstein, the American conductor, was there. And um, Joseph Ratzinger was sitting next to a Lutheran bishop, Johannes Hanselmann. And when the last note of this great Bach cantata, quote, triumphantly faded away, we looked at each other spontaneously, and right then we said... Anyone who has heard this knows that the faith is true. The music had such an extraordinary force of reality that we realized, no longer by deduction, but by the impact on our hearts, that it could not have originated from nothingness, but could only come to be through the power of the truth that became real in the composer's imagination. Uh, Again, Wonderful, wonderful reflection on Mozart's significance uh, in the life of Joseph Ratzinger, and which stayed with him uh, throughout his uh, years as Pope as well. Well, listen, since today is the anniversary of Mozart's death, and there's been so much speculation about his death, let me go over the number of different theories about how he died. Robert Greenberg, in his series on Mozart for the Teaching Company. It goes over this. In the summer of 1791, Mozart was anonymously commissioned to write a requiem mass. And this fact uh, has helped create the myth that he was, in fact, murdered. Near the end of her life, that's his wife, Constance, near the end of her life, she told two Mozart researchers that Mozart was obsessed with the notion that he was being poisoned with aqua tefana, a, a mixture of arsenic and lead, and that the requiem was really for himself. Less than a month after Mozart's death, the Berlin Newsweekly Weekly reported that his body swelled up after death, giving rise to the idea that he was poisoned. And the reporter also mentioned that Mozart was the object of conspiracies during his life. And then Alexander Pushkin, in his play Mozart and Salieri, suggested that Salieri had murdered Mozart. Pushkin's play was then turned into an opera by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and became the backbone of the play by Peter Schaeffer, which became the movie Amadeus, which is not a great picture of Mozart, by the way. Um, and that's how the, it came about, that people began to reflect on Salieri, who had gone rather mad in his late years, and he claimed to have poisoned Mozart. But other theories came up, that he had been killed by a Jewish, Roman, Catholic, Masonic conspiracy, and it gets crazy. Uh, in 1994, there was an article in Discover Magazine, which had a much more medical uh, explanation for Mozart's death, this subdural
4: hematoma uh, caused by, you know, an act. What is catechesis, and why do we care? The job of catechesis is to reveal all the joy as well as the demands of the way of Christ, says the Catholic Catechism. The way of Christ is summed up in the Catechesis of the Beatitudes. Jesus gave us the eight Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. The Catholic Catechism tells us this teaching is the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude, happiness, for which the human heart longs. The Catechesis of Sin and Forgiveness challenges us. Unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, states the Catechism, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly, and without the offer of forgiveness, man could not bear the truth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
5: Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo.
3: Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now, is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data, we got tons of data, not a lack of information, we got a lot of information. Not just about things that are happening in the world, we got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God, but not a lot of intimacy with God, not a lot of relationship with God, not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship, and we're not taking advantage of it.
5: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
6: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? Even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families.
7: Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's
8: 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following non-profit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary in the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by
9: word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Henry Kissinger, who died last week at the age of 100, I think it's fair to say he was the most famous uh, foreign policy practitioner in certainly our lifetime and probably modern American history. But, you know, it's interesting. He practiced foreign policy for only eight of those 100 years. He left office uh, you know, as Secretary of State nearly half a century ago. And yet, you know, he's... Greatly admired, also greatly despised. Uh, but he managed to hold the world's attention long after his power waned. Well, joining me right now to talk about Henry Kissinger and his foreign policy uh, uh, successes and failures, we've got Dr. Paul Kengor. Uh Paul's the author of many books, including, most recently, The Worst of Indignities, The Catholic Church on Slavery. His other books include The Devil and Bella Dodd, The Devil and Karl Marx, uh, and a Pope, and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the Extraordinary Untold Story of the 20th Century. Paul, good to have you with me again. Thanks. Yeah, good to be back, Al. Thanks. I had I heard from a listener today who said that we should have you back on to talk about a follow-up to the interview we did on The Devil in Karl Marx. And what she said was that at that time we didn't get to spend much time talking about um, the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism. So, I promised you we would do that someday. Not today, mm-hmm. but someday, in the near future. That
6: sounds good. Yeah.
2: Sure, sure. Uh, let me, let's go to Henry Kissinger, though. Uh, mm-hmm. I, big footprint. I mean, this guy continued to you know, be in the news long after he was actually in formal, able to exercise formal power.
6: Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I don't even know if I mentioned this in the piece I did for National Catholic Register, Al, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it was. I think it was almost exactly fifty years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. I think um, it
6: was. It would have been yeah, with Lee Duc Toe of um, of Vietnam, and that was um, that was a very disputed Nobel Peace Prize right. by a lot of people, and and it's really interesting. I I, w- I was just looking again at the piece I did for the Register. And I see the reader comments right now. there are forty one reader comments uh, f- following this article which is which is a pretty good number um by the way, I did one on Sandra Day O'Connor, which has twice that many already <laughs> well, that's interesting but it's yeah, it's really interesting the way people are reacting to to these two deaths which, mm-hmm. which which both occurred in the in the last week but but in going through the Kissinger reader comments uh man, there's a lot of yeah, I'll just say it. Kind of uh, hatred. Yeah, they, I, I'm sure I, you know, the people probably wouldn't like me accusing them of hatred, but, um, you know, revulsion, loathing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, you know, they, they there's really uh, kind of his death and and him being back in the news has really opened some old wounds. Yeah, yeah. you can tell by by a lot of sort of, um, you know, I'll I'll just use the tag, right? Kind of left-leaning, liberal Catholics. Um, and the guy lived to be a hundred years old. I, I had been. Um, in email correspondence with him uh, through R. M. Terrell Jr., who's the founder of the editor, founding editor of the American Spectator, mm-hmm. um, he's the editor in chief. I'm the editor. I'm, I'm Bob Terrell's successor, and and Kissinger. I was working with Bob to get some endorsements for for Bob Terrell's memoirs, and one of the ones that he went to was Henry Kissinger, <laughs> and Kissinger was as nice as could be. Yeah. and and just up until a few weeks ago. And he was like, I guess I could say this now. He was in Paris, and and uh, Bob was emailing with him, and I said, "Boy, he seems like he's in good shape, doesn't he?" He said, "Yeah, he really does." <laughs> and then, so so the death was kind of a surprise. Although at the age of one hundred, it should never be a surprise. <laughs> but <laughs> but but for but for Terrell, Terrell pointed out, "I said, well, what do you think, Bob?" I, I mean, a lot of people on the conservative side didn't like Kiss- Kissinger either. They saw him as sort of a a Rockefeller Republican right. you know, a Ford Detente Republican and Charles said, yeah, and people d- didn't realize how conservative Kissinger was across the board. Mm-hmm. I mean he in fact the fact that he loved magazines like the American Spectator really really tells you something. It does. So he was this very complex man who alienated a lot of people on both sides and I try to convey in this article, of some of the people who are criticizing me, I maybe didn't read it closely enough, but I try to convey that uh, he's he's a complex character. I'm not saying whether I like him, uh, and uh, depending on where you stood, um, even then it wasn't always clear where you were going to fall on the on the on the subject. The man of Henry Kissinger.
2: That's very true. He also acknowledged that almost all the choices uh a man of his position uh makes they're almost all choices between evils and so, oh, yeah you know so he kind of accepted a very pragmatic approach to uh foreign policy and uh i remember christopher hitchens actually doing a documentary which just ripped kissinger apart as a war criminal and it was just out- i mean just incredible uh what yeah. was said about him but he also had, you know, at the time, great successes. He helped Nixon on the uh, opening of China, which, you know, at the time was considered a big, big step forward in the Cold War because it yeah looked, it was huge. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, what what was his? You know, what, let's talk about détente because yeah, uh, this was conservatives during the Nixon years. Uh, Came to despise this idea of détente, and it was one of the reasons uh, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was appeal- appealed to them. He wasn't simply going to get along uh, with the Soviet Union.
6: Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. And and this is a real dividing line. And, and this is where I really part with Kissinger. So Kissinger was part of it. It was him and Nixon with this kind of real realpolitik Machiavellian realism approach to foreign policy where their understanding was, hey, look, the Soviet Union is going to be around for the next 100 years. OK, yep. so what we need to do is is you we know, we're not pro-communist in any way. We despise communism, I and mean, this was Richard Nixon, of all people, right? The guy who got Alger Hiss. Right. Along with right. And, and in fact, part of the reason they, they, they went toward China was in order for China to check the Soviet Union. Right. It was this really kind of brilliant triangular diplomacy that, that, they, that they were playing there. But, but they said the Soviets are going to be around for a long time, so what we need to do is we need to learn how to get along. We should have treaties and trade with the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. and we need to accept, and here's the really controversial part that drove Ronald Reagan crazy, and also bothered people, including a poll by the name of Carol Wojtyla, Mm -hmm. the future Pope John Paul II, but Kissinger and Nixon said, we need to just accept that Eastern Europe is part of the Soviet camp, right? Right. Um, It's part of their so-called sphere of influence. That was the phrase that they used back then. The countries in the Warsaw Pact behind the Iron Curtain, you know, it's a shame that that's where they are, but we just need to let that be. That's the Soviet sphere of influence, all right? They stay out of Western Europe, we stay out of Eastern Europe, and we're going to learn to get along. Well, Ronald Reagan said, no, that's like selling down the river the Eastern Europeans. Right? That's where you're trying to get along with the masters of these people in the Kremlin. The people of Poland, East Germany, um, Albania, Hungary, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia. yeah. Yeah, they are under the jackboot of Soviet totalitarian communism. And Reagan said it, it is the greatest immorality to make a deal with their slave masters where you accept the subjugation of these hundreds of millions of people just so you can have treaties and trade. Reagan said what we need to do instead is find a way to roll back the Soviet empire to liberate the people of Eastern Europe. And this is what a lot of the liberals didn't get at the time, but John Paul II understood it. Reagan said we can do this in a peaceful way. I'm not talking about dropping nuclear bombs all over the Soviet Union, right? We could do this through economic warfare. We could do this through SDI, through aiding freedom fighters in whatever part of the world, um, or at least they were called freedom fighters, right? The people trying to uh, push the Soviets out of Afghanistan, aid the Solidarity Movement in Poland. So it was this multi-pronged approach by Reagan that um, Kissinger and Nixon would have thought, oh, you're crazy. That's not going to work. The Soviet Union is going to be around for a 100 years.
10: Mm-hmm.
6: But Reagan said in the late 70s, when Détente was still being pursued and picked up by Republican Gerald Ford, and Kissinger was his national security advisor as well, mm-hmm. and even Democrat Jimmy Carter, and Reagan said, no, 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 we win, they lose. We <laughs> can win this thing, and right. we can win it peacefully. Yeah. And so on that, Reagan and John Paul II, too, were right. Kissinger was wrong. Nixon was wrong. And as I point out in this article, Pope Paul VI, um, who supported this as well, he called it Ostpolitik, his form of detente. Um, you know, I'm sorry, folks, but he, he's a saint. He was right on humane vitae and all kinds of stuff. But diplomatically, that approach that they had, likewise toward communism, was wrong. Yeah. They needed to roll back the Soviet empire, not accept its dominance over the people of Eastern Europe.
2: You know, it is interesting because, again, the the Vatican foreign policy shifted uh, around the same time that U.S. foreign policy shifted. Uh, Was that Mm -hmm. by collaboration or just, uh, you know, uh, great minds uh, follow similar paths?
6: Well, Ronald Reagan would have called it providential. He said it was part of the DT. The Divine Plan.
2: Right,
10: right. I
6: even had an acronym for it. Um, but there, there is, and I talk about this in my book, A Pope and a President, there was a relationship between Richard Nixon and Pope Paul VI that's quite fascinating. Uh, Andrea DeStefano, who's a friend of mine, an Italian scholar, has done some of the best work on this. And those two, Nixon and Paul VI, really respected one another and got along really well, and both had really good minds. All right, you know, that was their approach, and, and maybe I should pull back a little bit and say they might have even been right at that time mm-hmm. in the early seventies, sure. right? Sure, so that's possible too. So at that point, you got to learn to just simply get along. But by the late seventies, especially nineteen seventy nine, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, right. Uh, yeah, The uh, hostages in Iran. We we lose, you know, Nicaragua, all these other different places. At that point, Reagan said, "No, it's it's now time to go on the offensive, on the offensive by firing missiles, right? But a, but a, but a policy of liberation. It's time to win. The yeah. Soviet Union, he said, is being held together by bailing wire. We it can easily fall apart." we need to take it down, we need to take down the Berlin Wall. People said, that's really dangerous. Reagan said, well, I think we can do it. Yep. Um, yeah. So it was that change, and John Paul II came in in on October 1978, yep. so about a little over two years before Reagan did, yeah. and it was a key difference. Just difference in the world.
2: The uh, amazing uh, act of Providence. I, it's just beautiful. Paul, thanks again. Uh, we'll talk soon about the uh, Cultural Marxism again, okay?
6: (laughs) Anytime, you got it.
2: All right. (laughs) Dr. Paul Kengar and his piece, uh, In Cold War, Kissinger's Realism, bowed to John Paul II's vision. That'll be available uh, in the Christa Guest archives.
0: Obli Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu.
11: This program is brought to you by the following
7: nonprofit underwriter.
0: Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative CMF Curo is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness.
4: The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today Do not recognize His presence in the Eucharist. Is it because we really don't go to Him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see You. I want to recognize You. I cannot live without You. Are we saying that?
8: EWTN.
5: Live Truth. Live Catholic.
2: Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child?
7: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This strange beatitude reminds us that Jesus is challenging us with his ways to heaven on a new exodus. We're leaving behind the Egypt of this world to find the eternal paradise of heaven. When we tend to think of happiness, we tend to think of it in a self-centered way, a possession of a temporary good or passing fancy. But Jesus is calling us into eternal happiness. And actually, morality is a search for happiness, says Dominican priest surveys Pink hairs. We're looking to be happy, and a lot of times we end up at dead-end roads that don't lead us to where we want to go. How can we be blessed when we mourn? In sorrow and difficulty, hardship and cross, we are called closer to Jesus. It's God's fingerprint in our heart reminding us that we're made for eternal happiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time
8: for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Family life is a ministry. We tend to think of ministry as the churchy stuff we do at church, but the word ministry means doing any activity that communicates God's love to another person. When we help our family love and worship God every day at home, we're doing ministry, When our families cherish each other with Christ's love, we're doing ministry. When our family is kind to others, or when we invite others to our home for godly fun and fellowship, or when we try to attend to each other's needs generously and cheerfully, we're doing ministry by doing things that share God's love with others. The ministry of domestic church life is among the most important ministries of all. And discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life. Check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Last month, uh, Argentina voted to elect Javier Malay to be the next president. It was a 56-44 landslide over their current uh, economics minister, Sergio Massa. Uh, Malay is a free market economist, uh, an ally of both the United States and Israel. Uh, He's a sworn adversary of China and Latin American leftists. Uh, he is also on record with some pretty hostile remarks directed towards Pope Francis. Join me right now to try to figure out what's going on there in Argentina and also why w- w- was one of the world's richest countries. Why did they uh, crash so badly? We've asked Dr. Robert Waples to join us. He's co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review and professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He's co-editor of Is Social Justice Just, and the editor of Pope Francis and the Caring Society. He also hosts the Modern Economics Issues Lecture Series at the Great Courses. And uh, Dr. Waples, good to have you back. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me on again. Let's, let's talk about um, uh, the situation in Argentina. Are we, about, I mean, are we going to see a, a radical change in economic policy, and is this going to be a test case that people will talk about, you know, in Mm. the future? Yeah,
9: so I'm not sure if we're going to see radical change. Uh, President Millet uh, goes into office uh, on the 10th, and uh, from what I understand, the Congress is definitely, uh, the majority in Congress is the opposition party to him. So whether or not he'll be able to get what the platform he ran on mm-hmm. actually implemented, we'll see. Okay. Uh, but if it does get implemented, I think a lot of people will look at it as a test case, although yeah. things are always complicated, and in Argentina, there's always a lot of things that can go wrong, as you were alluding to. Yeah. Uh, you know, At one point, Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, if you look at Argentina's income versus like the other dozen or so richest countries in the world, at the t- early 20th century... Argentina was at the ninety was at ninety percent of the average of those rich countries and had a GDP that was higher per person than France wow. than Germany, yeah, yeah, not as high as the United States or Britain or whatever but it was it was doing great, and people were very bullish on it um, and then it kind of slowly started to slip and then it started to slip even more and it down to the point now where it's at about 40%. Wow. GDP per person in the country has fallen from 90% to 40% of those countries. And you know, it's at about a third of what the United States is. So Is it clear what went wrong? Although, although it has continued to grow. Yeah, what went wrong? So, boy, a lot of things went wrong. You can just kind of look at some recent statistics from Argentina. Their uh, annualized inflation rate is now at about 185%. Ooh. And their GDP, yeah, that's incredible. We've fortunately never had anything like that. In right. Industry. And, you know, their GDP, gross domestic product, uh, is falling at about 5% a year. Mm. Um, and so they have just been unstable, and they've got a history of then going to international agencies like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and, and asking for a loan so they can kind of restructure their debt to the rest of the world. They got the biggest loan ever from the IMF, $57 billion back in 2018, and then just two years later, they failed to make their interest payments, defaulting oh. on their loan. So they got problems, but it, it seems as though the problems are, are very long-term.
1: Mm-hmm. right?
9: And so uh, I, I've been following this as an economic historian uh, on and off over decades, and there's some pretty... I would say there's somewhat of a consensus onto, as to what happened, what went wrong in, okay. in Argentina. Okay. So a uh, part of the story is that while Argentina was, you know, at 90 percent of the leader level, um, not everything was up to that standard. Uh, Argentina was very was very rich in land and cattle. But their population wasn't nearly as educated as those other countries. They didn't have as much physical capital, you know, in the, the form of factories and railroads and that kind of stuff. Uh, but more importantly, most of the analysts say it really has to do with institutions. When economists say institutions, we mean the rules of the game, yeah. which would include your, you know, your constitution and your regulations and laws, but also. Kind of what are the social and cultural norms in the country on top of that? And most economists say a good set of institutions are ones that give you very secure property rights. So you don't have to worry about arbitrary seizure of your property. Right, right. They give you a good stable set of rules, a stable government, and incentives set up in your country so that individual effort pays off, right? There's not confiscation taxes there's not crazy high inflation which can end up ripping you off but argentina really hasn't had that especially since the period after world war ii when juan peron and his party uh, came to power and so there's just been a number of military coups which is not good they haven't had one of those for a good 40 years or so Uh, but there's a lot of policies that just have violated people's property rights. There have been seizures of property by the government. Seizure of the oil industry, seizure of, seizure of the banks, mm. of the grain trade at one point, and probably most foremost in people's minds, in 2001, when there was a big financial crisis, a seizure of people's bank deposits. Good heavens. So here you've been saving your whole life, and they seize your bank deposits, and then give you basically, you, know, you get to keep almost none of it so that kind of thing yeah really can break the back of an economy and so one of the articles in a really good symposium from the Latin American Economic Review from about 5 years ago looked at peron's rhetoric you know what he said in his speeches and this is filtered through to you know to this day and his rhetoric was about how there are these local elites and they're out there to rip you off and there's bad outsiders and they're also trying to rip you off, and you don't have, your effort won't pay off. Uh, Success is entirely based on luck and minimizing the importance of personal autonomy. And kind of selling that creed to people, mm. so come to me, come to me, Juan Peron, come to me, the government, the state, yeah. and I will solve your problems because you don't have any autonomy in your life, and it's the big guys against you, and it's time for us to bring them down a peg or two okay. and even things up and so that's not usually a good recipe for economic success in right. your country yeah yeah
2: yeah that's that's amazing um, and <clears throat> I, I
9: have a colleague who. Yeah. I guess when he was an undergraduate, was in Argentina for a semester. And he told me he went to one of the the rallies of the Peronist Party. And I think it was Christina Kirchner who was leading the rally. He said it was just spine-tingling. It was like going to a fascist rally, like you see Hitler on an old news clip. And there were tears, and there was anger, and it was just whipping the mob up. Wow. And so... Any country's got to be aware be aware of that. Yeah. We have a little bit of that in our country today too. Yeah, <laughs> got to be true. aware of that kind of thing. Well,
2: it's 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 uh it's just amazing uh that this is enduring, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um there's, there's been a good amount of time passed. Uh but put this in context or put his uh hostility to Pope Francis mm-hmm. in that larger context.
9: Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, so, you know, Pope Francis does have a degree where he's skeptical, I'll say, of market economies and how they work. Right. And, and Millet has, I think, seen that when you've got that hostility toward a market economy, you end up doing these Redistributive, and especially the term economists use is rent-seeking. People go to the government to try to get special favors, and all these special favors uh, give me a leg up, and my competition, you know, push them down. Yeah. But all those special favors shrink the size of the economic pie. When you're all trying to do that, it it blocks the kinds of, you know, entrepreneurship that can lead to economic prosperity. And so Millet, i'm you know I'm not convinced that this guy's going to be able to do what he says, or even necessarily that he's um overall a good thing okay uh so i I'm a journal editor, as you mentioned, uh the Independent Review, and after M- Millet got elected, I noticed that you know he had this autobiography that he published last year in Spanish, and I can't read Spanish or anything, but uh <laughs> I asked a, an economist from Latin America that I know if he would like to review the book. And he said, you know, I'm not really sure if I should. This guy's got a toxic personality. Mm. He's known for plagiarizing almost everything he writes. I wouldn't be surprised if he plagiarized his own autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know. Uh, You know, you got like, uh, you got a seesaw effect that's been going on in this country. One party in power and they mess up. And the other party comes to power, and then things go wrong, and they turn to the other party, and they keep, you know, undoing what the other ones did, and expecting the. Although I think what Millet's got going for him is he wants to get the state out of as many things as, as he can. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that that would, if it sticks, that would probably work, uh, but I think it'd be difficult for it to work.
2: But uh, even that, even that, could one? become yeah. cronyism, right? I mean. Um, that's true. You know, that's so true. that's why it's important to watch uh, what he does yeah. there. He's talked about wanting to um, um, it, dollarize, you might say, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the currency mm-hmm. there. That's uh, the word, yeah. Yeah. What, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs>
9: <laughs> and, and so uh, there are a bunch of little countries around the world that basically don't use their uh, currency of their own and then. They use the dollar instead. A lot of little countries down in the Caribbean, for example. There's a few others that do, including some in Latin America. Um, Panama, from the get-go, basically was using the, the dollar. Later, El Salvador and Ecuador. And Ecuador is, you know, about a quarter of the size of Argentina, population-wise. But this would be a much bigger dollarization. And what you would do is basically declare the dollar legal tender. So, you know, that means that... Uh, it's got to be accepted as a means of payment uh, to the government, to private people. And the question is, where do you get the dollars? Yeah. Right? Where do you get the dollars if Argentina's already in debt? But yeah. it turns out Argentines already have a lot of dollars. Okay. Because they've had all this bad experience with their own peso, a lot of people have just converted as many things as they can into dollars. There is an estimate from the Argentine Economic Ministry that I found that said they got $370 billion dollars. Hmm. In dollar-denominated assets that would work out to eight thousand dollars per person. Huh. That's not dollars per se, but that's dollar-denominated assets. Mm-hmm. And I've seen estimates of you know dollars themselves, you know, pieces of cash, and you know things in deposits and, and banks and stuff of at least a couple thousand dollars a person to get going. So that,
2: but that but right now, more. yeah, right now those dollars are not legal tender in Argentina. <laughs>
9: mm-hmm. Uh, although a lot of people make transactions in them, and a lot of people have bank accounts in dollars.
2: Hmm, yeah. yeah.
9: So how do you get more dollars? If you're, going to, if you're going to dollarize your economy, where do you get the additional dollars that you need? Uh, and so the traditional ways of getting more dollars are printing them up. Of course, yep. they can't do that. <laughs> We get to do that, and we get the profit from that. And that's what giving up their own currency does. They don't get the profit from making their own currency anymore. So you can print it up, you can borrow it, but they are not in a position to borrow. And so the only way they really have to get it is to pay for it with exports. So buying things from the U.S. or from other countries, uh, they would have to run a trade surplus. Okay. And, yeah, send the own right. products out and then get paid in the dollars, which would then circulate through their economy, and they would use those.
2: Is this... So I want—I saw want one column to say that this will blunt China's effort to undermine the U.S. currency. Is, is it that mm. significant a move?
6: Uh, well,
9: that's a complicated set of issues. Okay. Um, I don't think that Argentina by itself is too much, you know, in, yeah. in the overall global scheme of demand for dollars. Um, It turns out that the total amount of dollars held outside the economy and, you know, trades that are being done in dollars continues to go up and has been going up very strongly. Hmm. It's just the fraction of all the international trades done in dollars has been going down. So. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed bag there.
2: All right. Well, Dr. Waples, thanks. We're out of time, unfortunately, but uh, uh-huh. I really do appreciate uh, your look at this and your caution when it comes to uh, uh-huh. the rhetoric of this man. So thank you.
9: It's always wonderful being on your show, uh-huh. so thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. Dr. Robert Waples, again, uh, professor of economics at Wake Forest University and co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review.
5: With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Creston the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
12: Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? It's old theory somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say
11: before you vent. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
5: Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Father Robert Spitzer uh, has been on a long-term project in apologetics. Um, it's He's published, I think it's now seven volumes, no actually it's more than that, it's pushing close to ten volumes. Most recently, he's written this outstanding book called Science at the Doorstep to God. Science and Reason in Support of God, the Soul, and Life After Death. I've asked Father Spitzer to join us next hour to go over. Some of these evidences, some of these arguments, and uh, give us some idea of uh, do these arguments and evidences kill materialism?
1: Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining me. This hour is going to be intense, it's going to be, uh, I think, edifying, very encouraging. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, has had a remarkable uh, career. uh, President of the university, he is now president of the the, uh, Major Center for Reason and Faith, and also the Spitzer Center. He's been host of EWTN's Father Spitzer's Universe, and he has published, I as far as I can see, at least in the English-speaking world. He's given us the most comprehensive uh, works in apologetics. Uh, So this is systematic. It is uh, brilliantly conceived. And we've talked about a number of his volumes in this series of books, but he's continuing to expand it. And recently he's published Science at the Doorstep to God, where he focuses in Uh, on the various uh, evidences that we can discern from the natural sciences that point to a beginning of the universe, because a a beginning of the universe, of course, is uh, compatible with the idea that God created the universe at some moment. Okay, Uh, In other words, the universe wasn't eternal. So, do science point to a beginning of our universe? The answer is yes. And then he's focused in on the fine-tuning argument, and uh, this, again, is the the fact that we have a privileged planet, uh, a life-affirming planet. What are the odds? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, We're also going to ask a, a more directly philosophical question, and that is, is theism more rational than atheism. In other words, given that um, you cannot prove or disprove in a, in a formal way the existence or non existence of God, but what you can do is you can look at the evidence and come up with what most appropriately uh, deals with uh, the evidence that's there. Is theism more rational than atheism? Uh, as you know, you know what I think about this, and you can be assured that uh, Father Spitzer also believes that theism is more rational than atheism. And we're also going to look at the medical and scientific evidence for life after death and the phenomenon that commonly called near-death experiences. So we've got a lot coming up. Stay with me. Right now, though, let's get to today's headlines.
0: Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, December 5th, it's the Feast of St. Sebas. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Republicans insist on latching border security to any supplemental plan for aid to Ukraine and Israel. Some lawmakers won't back any package that lacks immigration policy changes, especially Texas Senator John Cronin. This is not just about more money. This is about changing some of the policies that have made the border a huge magnet to
6: people from all around the world.
0: Democrats on Capitol Hill have resisted adding the GOP-backed border security provisions to President Biden's international supplemental spending packages. But Republicans appear to have an unlikely ally, as some Democratic state leaders, including the governor of Massachusetts, are urging lawmakers to boost border security plans. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is lifting his hold on hundreds of military promotions despite no change in the Pentagon's abortion policy.
1: They didn't get what they wanted. We didn't get what we wanted. And, you know, when when you change the rules, it's hard to to win.
0: The Republican senator told reporters he'll only block military promotions for four-star generals and officers. This comes after Tuberville's months-long block of senior officer promotions over the Pentagon's policy to reimburse travel for service members seeking an abortion. There's no threat of a tsunami after a magnitude 5.1 earthquake hit on Hawaii's Big Island. The earthquake hit Monday. The U.S. Geological Survey initially reported the earthquake with a magnitude of 4.5, then upgraded it. There aren't any reports of injuries or damage. And a YouTube influencer will spend six months in federal prison for intentionally crashing his plane in California. 30-year-old Trevor Jacob admitted to staging the crash for YouTube viewers and intentionally destroying the wreckage of the plane. From your Alve Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Steve Clark.
2: And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today, there's more science-based evidence for God, the soul, and life after death than ever before. And so you then ask, why do we keep hearing about scores of people, an epidemic of people turning to unbelief because of, quote, science? Well, we're going to answer that question, uh, but most simply, it's because people actually don't know the science here. Uh, With me to talk about this and in following up on an outstanding new book of his, We've got Father Robert Spitzer. It's science at the doorstep to God, science and reason in support of God, the soul and life after death. And Father Spitzer is the author of many books, uh, and we're going to continue to talk. He's probably has the most thoroughgoing apologetics uh, program, the most consistent, the most evidence-based that I've seen, at least in this generation in the English-speaking world. He's the president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith and the Spitzer Center. He was president of Gonzaga University from 1998 to 2009. And Father, it's a delight to have you back with me. Thank you.
10: Oh, it's always great to be back with you, Al. And thanks again for taking uh, taking this good interview, the time for the interview, and also for that uh, the uh, the apologetics accolade. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, it's incredible what you're doing, and. Uh, <laughs> Let's go to some of the problems here that that people have trouble with. So there's this general impression, people still believe, uh, they just believe that somehow science and uh, religious faith are uh, terminally opposed to one another, and uh, there's been this warfare going on, uh, and coupled with that is the notion that scientists are really at heart atheists. Why don't you take those two points?
10: Sure. I mean, I'll do it in reverse order. Sure. Uh, today, um, more scientists than ever before are proclaiming, declaring themselves to be theists. Mm-hmm. That is to say, believers in God or a higher transcendent power. So the Pew survey uh, recently did a, um, a, a comprehensive survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And here are the startling statistics they came up with. The first thing is, among scientists overall, 51%, obviously a majority, a slim one, but nonetheless a majority, 51% declare themselves to be theists, Hmm. to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. About 21% declare themselves to be agnostics, and about 20% declare themselves to be atheists. Now, if you look at that, you go, well, um, the popular culture, the urban myth that most scientists are atheists are simply not true. Twenty percent are atheists. Fifty-one percent are declared believers in God or a higher transcendent power. But here's the really interesting fact among young scientists, this is the 35 or younger group, that um, you have 66%, a supermajority, two-thirds, 66% declared themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power, and only 15% uh, declared themselves agnostic, and 15% declared themselves to be atheists. So now 66% versus 15% uh, I think it's pretty clear at this juncture. Scientists, especially the young scientists, are are definitely um, um, have moved mm-hmm. hugely in favor of God. That's great. Uh, also, uh, that was not me. That was the Pew Survey and the American Association of the Advancement of Science. Furthermore, if you look at the doctors, that's the shocking one. 76% of physicians, doctors, basically declare themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Hmm. Only 12.1% declare themselves agnostic, wow. and 11.2% declare themselves to be atheists. <laughs> so as you can see, I mean, it's really? right down the line. There isn't a group uh, in the sciences, the sciences that uh, doesn't have a majority yeah. of um, of theists in it.
2: Yeah. Oh, you know we had we've had some celebrity scientists over the last generation who have you know made have conflated their atheistic philosophy with their scientific research. And so you have mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. going back to Carl Sagan, and then you have uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins, Dawkins. Sure. celebrity scientists like that, they've got a disproportionate amount uh, of influence, I think.
10: Um, oh yeah, and I mean, I think with respect to Richard Dawkins, you know, he changed his mind uh, during a debate um, uh, in London, I think it was about four years ago, Uh, He was basically debating Archbishop Williams, the Anglican. Yeah, Yeah, uh, Williams. Prelate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, anyway, Sir, Arth- uh, Sir Anthony Kennedy, um, uh, Sir, A- Sir Anthony Kenny yep. was moderating that debate, very important analytic philosopher in London. And uh, right in the middle of it, you know, Archbishop Williams had him backed up against the wall, Dawkins against the wall, and he basically says, um, uh, Dawkins says, Well, you know, I've really kind of moved from uh, atheism to agnosticism. <laughs> at which point, um, Sir Anthony uh, Kenny says, what? <laughs> I mean, you of all people, the founder of the new atheism, right. blah 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 blah, and you are now just cavalierly saying you're an agnostic, and he basically said, well, uh, his curiosity had trumped his skepticism. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, just—it's—it's it's unbelievable what's happening. I mean, Stephen Hawking's uh, Hawking, of course, turned on a dime. Um, you know, before he was basically resistant to any thought of a beginning and a creator, as he said, because a beginning implies a creator. Yeah, that's right. It was against it. And then in 2018, uh, he basically writes his last scholarly uh, scientific uh, um, uh, article with his partner, Thomas Hertog, uh, called A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation. Translation of that title... Um, If inflation is not eternal, and the evidence now shows distinctly from the Planck satellite and the LISA and LIGO gravitational wave uh, perturbation detectors, if they basically are showing, uh, if the data is correct, essentially there's just no way uh, inflation's going to be eternal. And if there's no way inflation's eternal, as Hawking himself says, it has a beginning. Believe me, he knows what a beginning is. And then he throws into, along with Ertug and many other physicists, throws this into the equation, even if there were a multiverse, and we're not saying that there is one, there would only be a small number. Oh. Of bubble universes, most of which uh, are like our own. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, wow, what a what a, change that was. Well, what
2: about the I mean, book that he did uh, just before his passing? The Grand the Design. The Grand Design, was, yeah.
10: Yeah, it was in 2010. Now, I debated him, actually, in the Larry King show on that book um, way back in 2010. And um, at that time, he was not uh, sure about God. He really did believe at that time um, that the it could be shown that the universe did not need a creator. Right,
2: that's what I remember that, what the thesis was. Yeah, yeah.
10: That's right, that's right. And now he's, uh, like, turned on a dime, like did a Dawkins, except more! I mean, basically gave the the physical grounds, the evidence, uh, for believing not only in a beginning, but uh, the Creator it implies. Uh-huh. Um, same thing with Sir Fred Hoyle. I mean, uh, this is a, a while back, I think in 2010 uh, or something, or whatever it was. Yeah, he was a steady-state
2: uh- uh- Theorists? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
10: Yeah. Well, basically Hoyle was the atheistic gadfly of the physics community for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't a turn of events that looked like it could be God, that Hoyle wasn't there in a (laughs) jiffy, you know, to say, no, there's an atheistic explanation. Well, somewhere around, you know, whatever it was, 2008 or whatever, he basically uh, comes out and he says, um, he, he, he's seen the, the the necessities for the resonance levels of uh, carbon, um, hydrogen, beryllium, and, and helium uh, to basically... Um, uh, have be you know so finely tuned in order to get an abundance of carbon? He basically wrote uh, uh, back into his Caltech uh, uh, journal. He basically said, "Look, he said there are you know there are no blind forces worth speaking about. Uh, the numbers that we are talking about here shows conclusively." Uh, that there must be some super-calculating, super-intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond uh, the shadow of a doubt or something. I think I paraphrased it correctly. But anyway, there it is. I mean, you look at these things, one right after the next, after the next, after the next, and you go, why is all this happening? And I think the reason that it's happening um, is that the evidence is becoming overwhelming today? And, and you put at, it
2: in two areas. You put it at the, the science point to the beginning that yep. the universe has a beginning, and then the other one that uh, the, the, the looking fine-tuning. at the, the fine tuning of the universe and the idea that this life affirming planet we're on is yep. in some way a privileged planet.
10: Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, all of these guys are very aware of what are called uh, fine-tuning for life or, you know, these fine-tuning values um, for life. Um, And uh, we've got like 20 constants in our universe. And uh, those constants, along with some initial conditions like low entropy, Um, they have to have very, very specific values in order for any life form to develop in the universe. Hmm. I mean, just to, to explain the low entropy we have in our universe today... Uh, essentially the odds against... uh, you need low energy, uh, low entropy, which is high order, Mm -hmm. in order to have uh, a life form, right? Right. And so uh, the odds against having our low entropy um, by pure chance at the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, the odds against it are 10 raised to the 10, raised again to the 123 to 1. That number is so huge, it is the same odds. As a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare perfectly by random tapping of the keys in a single
2: try—that uh, I is, love the in single try thing. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah.
10: Virtually impossible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like having a, a huge uh, thing that spans, uh, you know, twenty of our universes and finding a pinpoint, uh, you know, specific pinpoint. Yeah. In the,
2: yeah. Well, Father, hold yeah. it there. We've got to take a break, uh, sure. and we'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, uh, science at the doorstep to God. Heartily recommend this to you. Uh, it's wonderfully organized and laid out. You can follow it. Uh, so, again, we're going to continue the conversation uh, for the remainder of this hour. I'm Al
4: Cresta. Father
7: Benedict Groeschel. Ah. Uh. I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings, and no matter what I see, I see reverence, awe. I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh yes, let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of mass. I stopped the mass, we prayed for the man. While the police were coming,
10: the ambulance, they removed him from the church, he didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came
2: whispered, respect. I wish it were true today.
8: EWTN,
5: live truth, live Catholic.
2: Christ
3: is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? Is that true? It's not true for most people in the church. Is Jesus my best friend? Is he your best friend? I'm looking around the church, there's a set of guys in here who have great man caves. As I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord said, Hey, when are you going to come to my man cave? (laughs) Like, you guys think a flat screen TV is really cool. You should see what I got to offer. Because I and I alone, he says, can really give you what it is you're longing for. Whoever it is we're rooting for right now, they're going to lose eventually. Whatever it is that's occupying our time, one day we're going to realize it really wasn't that important. Why aren't we hanging out with the one who alone can show us what life is really all about? When was the last time you hung out in the Lord's man cave?
8: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
0: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic Wellness Coaching, Spiritual Direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com. Where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me, Father Robert Spitzer, Science at the Doorstep to God. This book is a thorough look at science and reason in support of God, the soul, and life after death. And we're going to continue our conversation. I I have found, Father, that there's a a notion out there, it's rather confused, but it goes something like this, that um, science is our most reliable way of knowing, and yet science can't demonstrate or prove – let me rephrase that – science can't prove the existence of God. Therefore, uh, we're guessing. Uh, you know, you, you're having kind of faith. Uh, behind this, of course, is c- confusion about so- what the what science can and can't do, and also what is the nature of the proof involved here. So, try to sort that out for me. Uh, sure. Um, First of all, uh, uh, science can't
10: formally prove the existence of God, but uh, certainly, as we'll see in a moment, science can give evidence of an intelligent creator. That is right. And so uh, um, the first thing to notice is what can't science do? Science is what we call observationally dependent. That is to say that um, every scientific truth has to be grounded in observable reality. Mm -hmm. So science, for example, can't prove God formally, and it certainly can't disprove God either. Because, uh, let's just take the disproof of God. If if science begins with uh, observable data, and all observable data must come from within our universe... But God is beyond our universe, then you can't use data from our observable universe to disprove a being like God, which is beyond our universe. So that's the first thing, science can never disprove God, anybody who tells you that certainly doesn't understand scientific methodology, and that's a laughable concept. The second thing that's very interesting is, well, can science give evidence for God? And uh, science can, as a matter of fact. One way that you just um, talked about in the previous segment was that um, uh, science can show that there has to be a beginning of our universe and now today we can actually show that if there is a multiverse or if there is even uh, you know so in other words if our universe is just one little bubble universe among trillions of trillions of uh, bubble universes in a huge mega multiverse and that multiverse uh, could that multiverse go back infinitely in time um, uh, as we can show now it cannot it must have a beginning and the same thing with string universes. And we know this uh, from the Hawking's um, proof that I was just talking about from 2018. We know this from the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof um, uh, that um, I've talked about uh, previously, where all uh, cosmic systems that have uh, Hubble expansion rate greater than zero, that just means they're expanding essentially, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, greater than zero uh, means an expansion. They have to have a beginning. So if you put together the Board of lincoln and goose proof you put together the entropy evidence now the hawking evidence uh the bank's evidence the hertog evidence you put it all together and what do you get you pretty much get we can know not only that our universe needs a beginning we can know that a multiverse needs a beginning an oscillating universe that's bouncing back you know expanding contracting expanding contracting it has to have a beginning and uh, even a string universe in the higher dimensional sp- uh, space of string theory that's going to have to have a beginning too so we do know that and science can actually definitively show that and that's the evidence I give in my book
2: and so the question then wanna... is is that is that mm-hmm. evidence uh, more compatible with theism or atheism?
10: Theism by far. Yeah, for exactly. sure. I mean, you, uh, any any uh, you know proof of a beginning formally, um, uh, or you know um, you know based on observable data, of course, uh, that's going to always favor theism, mm-hmm. uh, because of course um, you can pretty much see. You know, this is just a quick uh, proof of, of the the concept. Look, if you have a beginning in physics, that means that prior to the beginning. Physical reality was nothing. But whether physical reality be a multiverse, a string universe, an oscillating universe, or just our universe, whatever physical reality is, if it had a beginning, then prior to that beginning, Uh, that physical reality was nothing. Number two, the one thing we know about nothing is it's nothing. (laughs) the only thing nothing can do is nothing. (laughs) So number three, uh, then you say, wait a minute, if prior to the beginning, all physical reality was nothing and nothing can only do nothing, then nothing could, uh, physical reality, uh, could never have moved itself from nothing to something when right. it was nothing, because the only thing it could do was nothing. And then the conclusion. <laughs> Therefore, something else, something which is beyond physical reality, something which is beyond even physical space and time, something which is beyond even space-time asymmetry itself, something beyond it all, something which has the power to cause or create a universe from nothing, must exist, and that must be what moves uh, our universe or multiverse or physical reality from nothing to something. So, you know, as I said, Hawking understood that, all too well. And because he did, he tried to resist a beginning up to the last minute, but in twenty eighteen he really changed his mind wow. on a dime
2: <clears throat> along with many others. <clears throat> so let's let's go then to uh, the, the idea of um the soul. Uh mm-hmm. it is, is is the soul something that can be scientifically investigated? Is it extended in space and time, or is the soul uh, unapproachable?
10: Well, um, it's a really good question because, of course, as you say, can I make a direct observation, uh, an empirical observation of the soul? No, you cannot. So it seems like, oh, wait a second, that disqualifies it from being then uh, an object of scientific investigation. But actually, you can investigate a soul From the inside, that is to say, from the consciousness of someone who can prove that he was conscious when his physical body was clinically dead. That is to say, he has a flat EEG. Um, he, uh, that's the electroencephalogram. Mm-hmm. So he has no electrical activity in his cerebral cortex, his frontal cortex, his visual and auditory lobes. You know, all he's got is a few sprutterings of neurons in the lower brain. So that won't affect thinking, vision, seeing, I mean, um, uh, uh, hearing, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, could you show... Um, that uh, somebody can demonstrate conclusively that he was um, alive when his physical body was dead, then, and you could show that for well over a thousand different cases, uh, you know, where you have an exceedingly good sample size, then you would have a scientific case for an implied uh, consciousness after bodily death, but if it's consciousness after bodily death, that consciousness has to be trans-bodily, beyond the body, beyond uh, physical processes and structures. Mm -hmm. It has to be what we would call an immaterial or spiritual form of consciousness, which we would call a soul. So implicitly, science can get at it. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Sure. one lady who, you know, um, uh, she was clinically dead, flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex. Uh, one lady, she di- uh, dies, um, and um, uh, when she dies, her soul body. Uh, leaves uh, her physical body and she goes zooming through the hospital walls. And she's right outside the uh, the third floor of the hospital. She's hovering there on the third floor. Looks down uh, in front of her and sees uh, the third floor ledge of the hospital has a tennis shoe on it. It's a filthy tennis shoe. It's got its worn left toe. It's got a shoelace stuck underneath the heel. And she describes it, you know, uh, what she's seeing. She comes back. You know, she's and um you know the, she says you know t- to the nurse there's there's a tennis shoe out uh, of this uh, third floor window here <laughs> um you know, and uh, I can tell you you're going to have to crawl along the ledge between the two windows but you, you you'll see it's been left by a construction worker probably twenty years ago. This nurse actually gets out and crawls out there and takes the picture of the tennis shoe precisely as described, which could not be seen from either window. Now, you have to look at that and you go, hmm, (laughs) wonder how she did that. Or some, you know, the nurse comes in and says, oh, Mr. So-and-so. Uh, We lost your dentures. No, 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 you didn't uh, lose um, my dentures. And in point of fact, um, um, you know, um, a nurse with red hair uh, took my dentures out right before you uh, put the paddles on me, uh, opened up a drawer underneath a machine that looks like this, and threw my dentures in there. If you find that machine, look in the drawer underneath, and there the dentures will be And there. Of course, they were. And then, uh, again, you know, um, uh, this is a really important statistic, which I'll come back to. Eighty-one percent of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, In other words, they have no visual images in their physical brain. Most of whom were um, blind from birth actually see accurately for the first time when they're clinically dead, when there's no electrical activity in their cerebral or frontal cortices or in their visual or uh, auditory uh, lobes. So you're basically talking about a physical impossibility of sight on two grounds. No electrical activity and blind from birth. Wow. Now this kid, I'll just give you the example of Bradley Burrows, right? A 16-year-old kid. He's blind from birth. He, you know, when he has his heart attack, he's on the, on the gurney there um, in the um, operating room, and boom, he goes zooming through the walls of the hospital, goes up to the roof, and he's looking down from the roof of the hospital. At the whole scene down below, and he goes, "Gosh, you know, I see it in snow for the first time in my life. You know, beautiful white snow." And uh, and um, I, I, I could tell by these grooved uh, the grooves uh, parallel grooves in the in the snow that um, those were made by trains. You know, train tracks must be underneath it. And so he's figuring all this stuff out, and he says, "You know, I saw a grove of trees up uh, in the distance there, and sure enough, a tram comes by." (laughs) And that tram has a huge sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right. And sure enough, that tram goes right down the tracks and goes off and curves off into the grove of trees. Of course, the one thing we know that trams and trains have are time schedules. We know where they are every second that they're on those tracks in motion. And so um, at that point, of course, Bradley identifies dead on. He had his heart attack the same moment that that uh, train was passing by. Tell me how you can explain that in a blind person.
2: Okay, Father, hold it there. We got to take a break. The music has come up. We're going to continue the conversation with Father Robert Spitzer. Science at the doorstep to God. The uh, he has done a spectacular job of using science and reason in support of God, the soul, and life after death. We'll be back and continue the conversation. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
6: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in there are options you can join solidarity healthshare a faith-based health sharing community plus solidarity healthshare can save you money with prices starting as low as 384 dollars a month for families
7: call to see how much you can save 844-398-9399 that's 844-398-9399
2: hi i'm al cresta do you remember writing your christmas wish list as a child
1: Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1.
4: The AP is now saying that news people cannot refer to pregnancy resource centers as pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers. They have to refer to them as anti-abortion centers because we're misleading the public by saying that they're offering resources, apparently. It is about consistently putting forth a culture of death, do anything you want sexually, being extremely woke. Every time you turn around, this is more proof that all they care about is their own agenda. And they're doing this to their own demise. If you look at the ratings, for example, of CNN, if you look at the subscription rates, right, of various newspapers, whether it's online or still hard copy and in print, continuing to decrease. And yet they do not care because it's about the agenda. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m.
10: Eastern on EWTN Radio.
4: How would you define the word beatitude? Webster's Dictionary defines beatitude as a state of utmost bliss and a declaration made in the Sermon on the Mount. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the beatitudes are, in effect, a portrait of the man who declared them, Jesus Christ, depicting his countenance and portraying his charity. The beatitudes also describe the attitudes and actions that should portray and depict his followers, true Christians. The Beatitudes are paradoxical in their promises. None seems more paradoxical than number eight, which proclaims, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The paradox is that God is present even amidst trials and tribulations. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
1: And
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We have more evidence now than ever before uh, for God, soul, life after death. And we're going over some of those evidences with Father Robert Spitzer. He's uh, collected them in a wonderful volume called Science at the Doorstep to God. And we were talking about uh, what are commonly called near-death experiences uh, last segment. I I first became aware of near-death experiences back in the 1970s. um, And the books that were being published then were, you know, collections of anecdotes and stories. Have we... Are there those who are actually studying these stories in a consistent and rigorous uh, manner?
10: Absolutely good question. Yes, in fact, um, just uh, last year in 2022, the New York Academy of Sciences basically uh, published a consensus statement. And in that consensus statement they said the peer reviewed literature the scientific of the scientific study of near death experiences is now so extensive in other words they based their findings on many good peer reviewed uh, articles that had really good studies first-class studies with thousands of people with, um, you know, uh, under the supervision of multiple scientists, etc., there's so many of these studies that now we can say, um, uh, uh, you know, that there is a credible possibility of your consciousness surviving bodily death. Of course, you can't get a scientific proof of a soul, but what you can say is there is a preponderance of evidence which strongly suggests Your consciousness will survive bodily death. Now, that's coming out of the New York Academy of Scientists. Fifteen years ago, you'd have never got anything like that. But now, the number of studies, like the Samuel Parnia study, 2014, called the AWARE study, at University of Southampton, the Pim von Lommel uh, study, uh, published in The Lancet uh, uh, in the Netherlands there, um, uh, you know, these things are just one after the next after the next. All the veridical data that I was just talking about. In other words, people actually demonstrating conclusively that they were conscious, able to report stuff outside the hospital, remote areas, et cetera, from where their physical body was um, during their clinical death. All these things are, are now compiled to the point where, yeah, the New York Academy of Sciences finally came out and said, yeah, the evidence is so rigorous, so well-established, there's a very credible possibility you're going to survive bodily death. Wow. And, um, yeah.
2: Well, what what... Um so let's—I'm sure you're aware of all the, the attempts to explain away these experiences. So, um, mm-hmm. the, the oxygen deprivation uh, produces yeah. hallucinations. Um, mm-hmm. You've got uh, uh, the production of weak transcranial magnetic stimulation yeah. of the temporal lobe. Um, right. The, what What are these uh, these naturalistic um, efforts to mm-hmm. dismiss? These experiences, are they have they been taken on have been challenged head on?
10: Oh yeah, they they've been challenged head on by about four or five really excellent studies. (laughs) None of them. Uh, can uh, bear up to the actual evidence. Um, uh, Let me just go through um, uh, that have been actually demonstrated in these studies. Number one, uh, near-death experiences are almost 100% accurate in the observations of patients uh, who were clinically dead, you know, flat EEG, et cetera. They were clinically dead, and they reported data 100% accurately, many of them outside the hospital, etc. You look at a hallucination or um, a stimulation of the uh, temporal uh, lobe or a stimulation of the parietal lobe or one of these other, um, uh, you know, a dreamlet, anoxia, etc. If you look at that it 's notoriously inaccurate what is seen during that hallucination experience of anoxia or stimulation of the lobes uh, first thing is is notoriously inaccurate and almost all of the time dead out false. Mm compare that to hundred percent accurate reporting that's a big difference the second thing is the physical brain in order to hallucinate the physical brain must have electrical activity always no electrical activity no hallucination hmm. however in the case of near-death experiences, it's the opposite. During near-death experiences, there is no electrical activity in the, in the physical brain at all. And yet, that's when the 100% accurate reporting is taking place. Thirdly, in hallucinations, hallucinations are notoriously agitating, anxiety-filled, internal disturbance. Whereas, with near-death experiences, exactly the opposite. Sense of peace. Sense of harmony, sense of an end to a suffering, emotional pain, and physical pain—exactly the opposite. I mean, there's just no way that any one of those physical uh, physicalist explanations pans up. I mean, they always violate those three really major differences. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I would say no, physical explanations have failed miserably to explain. There's a really good book on this by a a very good neuroscientist named Mario Beauregard uh, down there at, um, uh, you know, University of um, Arizona. Um, And uh, you can actually read his book. It's called Brain Wars. Brain Wars.
2: Very good. Um, Let's go to uh, broader... uh, questions regarding religious experience or spiritual experience. Um, In your chapter dealing with this, you lead off with St. Augustine's uh, famous phrase from, famous Mm -hmm. sentence from the Confessions, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Um, You know, this is usually used to point out that we're made for god and we will find satisfaction in coming to know him and along the way there are people have testified to various experiences of god uh, an experience of the holy uh this kind of um almost uh traumatic sense of god's presence uh Mm-hmm. Um, and there are others have a, a different sense of the presence of God, which is uh, a, a transcendental sense of consolation uh, or awareness of another with a capital A. Wh- how? Where does? Where do these? Where do these stories lead? Are they bound up together in some uh, proposition that you can give us uh, that yeah. makes sense? hmm uh,
10: There are <clears throat> definitely common elements in religious experience throughout the world. Um, uh, you know, it, it originally uh, it was an American, William James, who tried to study them right. in a very scientific way. Uh, I think the, the very seminal book um, from the uh, uh, vantage point of philosophy and um, uh, theology of religion, <clears throat> or at least religious experience, um, is Rudolf Otto's book, <clears throat> The Idea of the Holy. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in the first uh, 40 pages or so, uh, you know, by the way, it's an Oxford University press book, so it's not a, you know, um, a fly by night deal, it's a, a very well, you know, justified... It's
2: been uh, in print there, for how long now? Oh, since
10: 1958 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, in any case, um, uh, it, it was a seminal book, though, and it got things going, even for Murcia Eliade and people like that. But the main thing uh, to remember is what Otto said was, look, hey, there's a, a pre-thematic, and what that just means is before you're really consciously reflecting and thinking about this, there's this kind of feeling, there's this sense, I'm just going to call it a sense, mm-hmm. that all of us have <clears throat> of what he calls the numinous." And numinous is something kind of riveting. Uh, it's, it, it feels transcendent. It feels mysterious. It feels, um, you know, um, uh, like uh, uh, fascinating in its mysteriousness and in its transcendence and its, you know, spiritual uh, sensitivity. It feels sacred. It feels holy. And he just calls it the holy other, not H-O, but Mm W-H-O-L-L-Y, the holy other. We're different. And he says, the minute we encounter this experience, this set of feelings, that the experience engenders within us, we view ourselves as creature. We are drawn uh, to worship what it is that's, that's appearing to our inner hearts and minds. And of course, uh, you know, 50% of Americans claim they have had a significant, what we might call numinous experience. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. one of those uh, big polls, et cetera. But the main thing, uh, to remember, is that um, Otto is on to something here and if you were to go to any <clears throat> you know country of the world any religion uh, in the world, and just say, hey, have you guys had uh, religious experience? Say, well, what do you mean by that? Something riveting, something fascinating, something urgent, something mysterious, something sacred, something holy, something above us, something that's overwhelming yet friendly, something that just rivets us to itself and pulls us into a world beyond the, the here and now world. Everybody would say, well, 88% of people around the world would say, yes. I have had that experience. There's something there I've I, I I resonate with that. There's something to this numinous experience. And of course, all religious leaders would say um you know unless you're a satanist or something like that, but I mean major uh world religions sure. would say yes, it's there. And so you say, "Well, how do you know that that is God?" Right. And um, you know, how, how do you know that's just not you uh sort of conjuring up this experience of the mysterious. And three um, reasons have been adduced, which I go through in the book, but i uh, you know, just do it very briefly here. Number one is whatever is appearing feels like it has a subjectivity. That means like an inner consciousness, which is different from our own. Mm. So in other words, I'm not just having a sense of feelings, like I'm feeling mystery. I'm feeling a mysterious person, as it were. I'm feeling a mysterious subjectivity, a a mysterious consciousness that has a perspective different from me, a perspective that's above me, and a perspective that's more powerful than me, uh, and so forth and so forth. But it's definitely like a consciousness. It's like a personality. It's not just feelings it's not just a thing not not There's, just I a mean, projection you know, of myself oh, yeah. yes and the, and this exactly and i the minute i experience it i know it's not me, <laughs> right. it is a subjectivity, but it's not my subjectivity. Its perspective is different, and I know immediately. That's one of the big things. The second big thing, um, you know, that comes out when people try to, uh, you know, distinguish it, is the fact that when we're, uh, you know, as it were, uh, uh, taken. Uh, by this experience, um, it leaves us, in, in some sense, uh, uh, believing, uh, you know, that we have been truly touched, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, by um, uh, not just this um, uh, mystical event, but by this mystical consciousness or something uh, that we might call it. So there's a, an effect uh, that stays with us uh, interiorly. And then, of course, the the third thing is is that uh, the numinous uh, correlates with what we call conscience, and and uh, conscience is basically where um, I, I have this sense, you know, when I violate a rule, right, um, you know the. Um, Uh, I I feel a sense of guilt or alienation or shame or something of that nature. I I know I have done wrong. I feel like I have done wrong. And I feel that, you know, uh, somehow I'm I'm held accountable uh, to what I've done wrong. And that correlates with the numinous. In other words, the source of that conscience, the source of the voice within me is the numinous uh, numinous one, uh, God.
2: Very good. Father... Outstanding. Thank you so much for being with me today. And we'll talk My again. honor always, Al. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Father Robert Spitzer, science at the doorstep to God. And uh, we'll have contact information for you on the other side of the break.
5: Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app.
12: Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked... 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child humility search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart
11: to my children? Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
5: With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest on the afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
2: Thank you once again for being with me, and let me urge you to follow up. Uh, go to AveMariaRadio.net. Go to the Crest Guest Archives. You'll follow. follow Follow-up information there on Mozart and Benedict XVI's love of Mozart. Uh, Also, Henry Kissinger's passing and uh, the different approach to um, diplomacy that he had, uh, which was uh, rendered null and void when Ronald Reagan took office. And then also follow-up information with Dr. Robert uh, Waples on Argentina, one of the world's richest countries not too long ago, now uh, just 185. Uh, percent inflation rate. Unbelievable. And then uh, following up with my conversation with Father Spitzer, the book, um, The Science at the Doorstep to God, that's available in the online bookstore. So you can go to avemariaradio.net and get the book. We'll get it out to you. Thanks so much. Lord
1: willing, I'll be back tomorrow. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.